WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. I am Rob Dreesline. Welcome, everybody, to the broadcast live and local. You can tell with a little uh, hiccup like that. Live and local. I am going to be here until 6 p.m. We're going to be talking outdoor topics. And uh, I've got uh, quite a a lineup here. It's going to be a fun evening. We're going to talk, you know, we, we mostly talk hook and bullet here, right? Uh, we mostly talk hunting and fishing. We're going to chat a little bit about uh, cross-country skiing and what that sport is dealing with given the weather conditions out there with Chad Salmella. He's the head coach for Team Berkey here in Minnesota. Yeah, they're a group of uh, folks that uh, are gearing up for the American Birkenbinder weekend, uh, which is, uh, what, three weeks out? Uh, I believe it's, uh, yeah, it would be three weekends from now, and they're hoping they still have snow <laughs> available for that event. We'll also do a recap from the Shooting Hunting Outdoor Trade Show, uh, back to the uh, the bullet side of Hook and Bullet. Uh, that was the SHOT Show held out in Las Vegas uh, last week, and Phil Freeball, one of my coworkers from Outdoor News, is going to join me and talk a little bit uh, about that event. Uh, so uh, excited to, uh, to, to chat here. I think we're going to uh, open the show talking about the elephant in the corner, uh, and that is the weather. I, I hate to, you know focus too much on that but it what we're what we're dealing with here is truly unprecedented and it uh, it deserves uh, some attention as we kick off this week's show uh, i think we're all seeing it we're all experiencing it uh, a little anecdote myself as i pulled into the driveway uh, this morning i went and uh, participated in a little music event this morning and then I came home, and it was you know bright and sunny. I don't know, it was about forty degrees roughly. I pulled up under the maple tree uh, that uh, some of the branches are over over my driveway, and I and I was pausing in the driveway for a moment, and I and I felt this dripping on my car. Right, I, I see this drip of something on my windshield, and I knew what it was. And I, I pulled into the into the driveway and, and in, into my garage, parked the the vehicle, and then walked out to the end of the driveway. And there were several spots on the sidewalk where there was sap from this maple tree dripping onto the, the sidewalk it had dripped onto my car and uh, that I, I i hope folks understand what a big deal that is on february 4th that's not supposed to happen for like another month uh, not you know not only are we you know enjoying some nice warmer temperatures in some ways it's, it's hindering other things as we've talked about ice fishing uh, we're going to talk about what it means for cross-country skiing. But maple trees out there, the sap is running on February 4th. Uh, the, this is a, a right of late winter, early spring that typically doesn't happen until March. I was chatting with uh, Scott Reemhelt. Scott is the South Region Director for the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. I was chatting with him on Friday about this topic <clears throat> because Scott has been tapping maple trees on family property, I guess, east of Mankato, he was telling me, for a long time. And uh, he they were tapping some, I think it was mostly silver maples, this past week. And, I mean, you know, he's been talking to other folks who tap maple trees who for, for the sap and then boil it down into syrup. And they, they were all saying, you know, they, what do you do? I mean, typically you tap the trees or the sap runs when you get, the sap running, it gets running when you get overnight lows below freezing and then daytime temperatures above freezing, which is exactly what we've been having right now. And and so go figure, the trees 
the sap is running. That's why it was dripping on my car this morning. I walked down a few houses. I've got a, uh, a neighbor who's got some hybrid maples, you know, like crosses between, they sell them in nurseries, uh, crosses between uh, sugar maples and silver maples, and they, they produce a lot of sap. And I looked up at his tree uh, because typically some of these hybrids grow so fast, you, know, you see the cracks uh, in, in, the, in the bark, and it was leaking from the bark, just like it does every year, but typically you don't see it. Right until March, um, you know. Sometimes this this goes into April, and here it is, February fourth, and we're seeing the sap running like mad. Uh, Craig was telling me that you know some he's got some big silvers that sometimes they'll put two three taps in. I, I think we've all seen these huge silver maples, right? That sometimes get three feet in diameter, and they're not a real valuable tree for anything else. So he he's he's generally doesn't feel bad about putting a couple two three taps in them. He said this year, you know, he's only putting one in. And, and, you know, everybody who's into maple syruping is saying the same thing. It's like, you know, go easy here. This is not a normal year. A, we're dealing with a drought, right? So these trees might already be stressed from that. And then B, who knows <laughs> what this means uh, to the trees. So let's, you know, if we're going to tap them, uh, you know, just, just, just put one in and monitor it. But he told me as soon as he drilled in, he, he got what he calls a wet tap, which is, you know, sometimes you'll drill into a tree this time, not this time of year, when when the season rolls around, and it won't be real active sap yet. It'll sometimes take a day or two. He said he drilled in, and it was like, you know, whoosh. There was definitely sap there. It was what he, what he called a wet tap. So it, it's running. He told me in other parts of the state he's seen the same thing. He's got uh, Mille Lacs Band members, friends in, the, uh, of course, the Mille Lacs area who were also uh, already tapping. And, and, you know, they... They'd been tapping there for, you know, many, many generations, and none of them ever remember maple syrup tapping occurring this early in the year. So it's it's truly, truly amazing, uh, you know, and it applies to other things. Uh, I was talking to Craig Sapir, also from the DNR out of the Waterville Hatchery, which is what uh, west of Faribault. Lake Tatanka, the ice in there was January 7th, 11 days later than the previous latest date that they'd ever had ice in. The previous latest date had been like uh, December 27th, and they had ice in on January 7th this year. Now (laughs) we're getting, you know, again, another week where we're seeing some temperatures into the 50s. We're seeing potential rain. And, I mean, Craig told me, you know, it's not out of the question. We could have ice out on a lake like Tatanka before the walleye season closes, which is, what, three weeks from today, I believe, right? Uh, Jan- uh, February 25th. So, I mean, it's conceivable you could have ice out on that lake before the walleye season closes, and you could have folks going out on that lake in boats, fishing for walleyes in, you know, in an open water situation before the, the <laughs> Before the season closes, I mean that's that's almost unheard of. Typically, right in a normal year, the season closes you know, February twenty fifth, whatever, and then uh, there's another month of ice fishing for panfish and that sort of thing after the walleye season closes, and then another you know month and a half, two months till the regular open water walleye opener. Uh, everything is turned on its head this year. Uh, and uh, I, I just want to be clear how unprecedented this is. It, what the, the scenario I just described with ice out, it, it may not happen on a lake like Tatanka and some other su- southern Minnesota lakes, but then again it might, and it's something we've never seen before. 
Uh, and uh, and Craig also pointing out that what the ice the ice in date on average is like 35, 40 days later than it was 50 years ago across a wide swath of southern Minnesota. Definitely seeing some changes out there. With that, I want to talk about what this means for a, a non-consumptive sport, you might say, cross-country skiing here in Minnesota. We're going to talk with Chad Salmella from Team Berkey about what all this means for cross-country skiing. When we return, you're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830 on this February 4th. I am Rob Dreesline, host here every week from 5 to 6 p.m. I have a day job at a little newspaper called Outdoor News. Check us out at OutdoorNews.com. Uh, when I wrap up here at 6, stay tuned for 60 minutes at uh, from 6 to 7. And then at 7 o'clock, uh, Tim McNiff is going to host the Sunday Night Show. I've been following Tim for many years. I used to be based down in Winona when he was a sports anchor in lacrosse. So I'll be tuning in to see what uh, Mr. McNiff is up to. Hey, like I say, we normally talk hook and bullet topics here. But I wanted to uh, break into a non-consumptive topic and talk a little bit about uh, Nordic skiing, cross-country skiing. And here to help me do that right now is Chad Salmella. Chad is the head coach for Team Berkey here in Minnesota. Chad, are you with me? How are you doing during this uh, bizarre winter weather? I'm with you, but uh, I'm not with this winter, that's for sure. This has not been a fun one and it continues to be a challenge. Well, I, yeah, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Chad, first off, after I asked you to be on the show, I realized you're the gentleman that made the call on the Jesse Diggins uh, gold medal race. Uh, that that was inspiring. That was that was a riot, a lot of fun listening to you. That must have been uh, pretty cool to, uh, to to witness as you did and, and make the call. Yeah, uh, yeah, I did it actually in at, at NBC Studios in in um, Connecticut. So it was it would have been way more fun to be there for sure. <laughs> I think I, I think uh, I just think that the uh, the moment was really a special moment for crossing skiing in the United States, and, and you know, I, I'm just really happy that I was, I was on the call, and people liked what I what I what I did with it. So yeah, no, yeah. you were you were uh, it was it was great, and and she's obviously inspired a ton of people to take up the sport. Which uh, let's let's circle yeah. back to that. Yeah, d- definitely challenging winter. Uh, your date, you're a cross country coach, a running coach at St. Scholastica, but you're also uh, head coach for this team, Berkey. Uh, the American Birkenbeiner is held uh, up, up in the Hayward area. It's, what, three weeks out, and uh, everyone's a little worried if there's going to be enough snow this year, huh? Yeah, at this point, I think that it's, it, I think it's pretty likely that it's, it's going to be some kind of a augmented sort of event unless, like, uh, we get a miracle three, two, two feet of snow, you know, snowstorm. Between now and then, which is always possible, but I, you know, I, these weather patterns aren't, aren't instilling a lot of faith in in our community that that's going to happen. So, uh, you know, when when Mother Nature doesn't deliver, uh, most of the you know most of the places that are getting any kind of crappy skiing action right now are all places with with uh, with man-made snow, snow gun snow. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It's held. It's there's actually what three races. It's kind of a whole weekend, right? It, and the there's two races. Yeah. There's a fifty k for skaters and a fifty three k for the for the classic uh, skiers. Tell us a little bit about the difference between those two. The classic skiing is what you know. If you're going to go out and, and use wax, you know, like uh, the, the the normal traditional style of, of skiing in the grooves, the two grooves in the snow. That's that's called classic style. And that, that was the normal way that most people skied until about 1979. And then a guy, an American named Bill Koch, uh, followed a guy named from Finland named Pauli Sipinen, who started do, using those in this, sort of these long-distance folk, like moppet races, they're called, in northern, in northern Scandinavia. 
start doing a skate technique, like having one ski in that in the groove and then one ski out of the groove in the, at an angle. And Bill Koch actually used that to win the, the second ever FIS World Cup, the event that's coming to Minneapolis that started in about 1981. In 82, Bill Koch, an American, you know, won the, won the second ever World Cup season skating out of the tracks and people were, you know, they changed the sport forever. And now um, it's so much, it's, it's much faster to race in the freestyle technique. So the, the, the main event at, at the Berkebeiner is the 50K freestyle race. But there is also a classic event in the classic style where you're not allowed to do the skate technique. And that's the difference. So there's a 54K classic trail, a 50K freestyle trail. And they also have the cordal open and the Vince Hulk on the they got a 12 kilometer for, for the shortest event. They've got another one at about 25 kilometer for the cordal open. So there's, there's a series of, of events plus lots of kind of like um, unique events that happen on downtown Main Street, like, you know, like uh, a team ski where they have like four or five people on a single ski set, set of skis. It's, so it's, like, it's just a whole week of fun celebrating Nordic skiing. Again, it's Saturday, February 24th. Uh, it's the largest ski marathon in the country. I guess it's in its 50th year now. It started in uh, in 1973. I presume there must have been a cancellation or two somewhere in there. Tell us a little bit about Team Berkey. Uh, this is, is this mostly Minnesotans? It's based here in the Twin Cities, and uh, it's folks like you that are preparing for this annual event? So Team Berkey is actually um, – so there are a lot of great uh, cross-country ski racing clubs that develop youth, the youth aspect of the sport and develop those athletes into, you know, all the way up, all the way up the food chain. And around the United States, there are several elite sort of elite level, like Olympic level training programs. And um, we realized that we have in the Lopez Foundation and all the clubs in the in Twin Cities and across Minnesota and across the Midwest, actually, we have, a, we have probably the strongest region in the country for developing young ski racers. Although until recently, we haven't had a program for the very best, for people who are at the, at the peak of the sport. And that's really what Team Berkey is. We've, we've, uh, it's, Team Berkey was originally created by Steve Gaskell and Abo Taipala, who used to own Finn Sisu Ski Shop in the Twin Cities. And they put together a, an elite team. Back when I was like, you know, I'm 54, so when I was like 20 or, or 18 years old, the original Team Berkey was there, and they were trying to just bring a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more support to that elite level of ski racing so, so that athletes can, you know, make their Olympic dreams happen. And, uh, you know, since then, it's, it's, it, it phased out, and then it was revived about three, four years ago, and I was hired last year to be the head coach of the program. We actually have two Midwestern skiers at the kind of the apex of the sport right now, Zach Ketterson from Bloomington, Minnesota. He's a Minnesota State champion from Bloomington. I believe it was Jefferson, and he skied uh, collegiately at, the, at Northern Michigan University and uh, was an All-American there and, and is now racing on the World Cup. And so is Kevin Bolger, who is from Monaco, Wisconsin, from um, but he actually, they both actually spend a lot of their year abroad, and they spend part of the time in the Midwest, part of the time in Scandinavia training. And um, and basically, Team Berkey, we, we we are supporting those guys like them and, and helping them with their training and their preparation for the World Cup, as well as trying to develop athletes coming you know coming out of college who want to be Olympians. And and that's really what Team Berkey is, is all about. So you know, we, we've had some challenges, and we also have we also have a marathon team, which is doing things like the Berkebiner, the Nocanian race, which has just happened last weekend in northern Michigan up in Marquette. There's a series of, of, of the Loppet-style races that I talked about, the, you know, the, the mass start, almost like, like uh, marathons on the road. And so we have a team that does that as well. 
We're chatting with Chad Salmella. He is, uh, Ch- Chad is the uh, head coach for Team Berkey here in Minnesota, talking about getting geared up for the February, February 24th American Birkenbeiner, America's largest uh, cross-country ski race. You can learn more at TeamBerkey.com, or if you want just information specifically on the race, go to Berkey.com. Uh, Chad, tell us, how do you cope with a winter like this? This has got to be the worst winter. You've been at this for decades. I presume this is the worst winter you've ever seen in terms of uh, trying to trying to train. Yeah, we, we saw some some rough ones, but I think this is the worst for sure. I, I think that we're probably more prepared than we've ever been as a sporting group of people. Like, you know, there are more places that make snow with machines than ever before for Nordic skiing. I mean, it, obviously, the alpine skiing, the downhill skiing business has has relied on it across the, across the world has relied on on snowmaking. But um, it's been more recent that 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 people have been putting in the infrastructure to do that. We did it up here in Duluth, where I'm from. Uh, we have a two and a half kilometer ma- um, man-made snow loop that is getting getting used a lot, and you, you have it across the upper Midwest. So that's about the only way you can do it, and it's not a fun way to do it because most of us who love crossing skiing love it because for the same people, re- same reason like go hunting or fishing, like being in the outdoors. Right. And uh, so, you know, going around in a hamster loop, it's not as much fun. I mean, it's nice <laughs> that we have those things for the people who really love it, but it makes it makes training tough. And I would say that this has been probably I'm 52 years old. This has been the toughest um, winter of my of my lifetime, for sure. And uh, not only does this impact Berkey, but we also have this Lopet Cup coming up, uh, what, February 17th and 18th, just two weeks ago, this World Cup race. Uh, Jesse Diggins is planning to run in it, and I, she's, like, on the leaderboard, right? I believe she's at the top of the leaderboard in, in terms of standings for that. So we, we all want to see that event happen, and we want to see her here. Uh, I, you know, every news report I've read is that it, it looks like it's on because they, they've got a pretty decent uh, course put together with fake snow like you were just describing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't had, once we got, I was worried until we had that cold snap. That cold snap gave them enough, enough time to make the snow I thought would be necessary to cover. I, they, I believe their race course is 3.3 kilometers, so a little less than, two, about two-mile course. And, and they'll do that multiple times for the long race. And it's two events. On Saturday, it's a sprint race, which only uses a 1.5-kilometer loop. And then in the, in the, on Sunday, it's going to use a 3.3-kilometer loop, and they'll ski it three times. I believe that's, that's correct. Um, but but they've done a great job, and, and it, you know I think anytime anyone sees rain in the forecast, even you know warm temperatures yeah. are one thing, even sun is another thing. The man-made snow really holds up. It's kind of like concrete compared to natural snow. So so I, I believe they're in really good shape. And, and the FIS actually um, reported to the world that that they, they have a thing called a snow control issue because this happens all over the world where organizers put it together and then and then they run out, they run out of snow or they have a, they have bad snow conditions. But uh, Minneapolis seems to be in good shape, and I would be surprised if they wouldn't be able to hold it off. So I would say if you have your tickets, plan on being on Worth, at Worth Park. I think it's going to be quite a show. Chad, we're pretty much out of time here, but I, I just want to throw out there that, yeah, this is a tough year. We've had some good winners, though, right? We probably had a string of some pretty good years, uh, and it's a great sport. It, you know, I, I know a lot of kids. I live in Eden Prairie. A lot of kids that are involved in cross-country in the fall, and they immediately jump into that Nordic schedule. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, you want to encourage folks to continue to consider the sport. They can go to TeamBerkey.com if, uh, if they want more information. Yeah, that'd be great. And, and, and just like you said, Berkey, American Berkey Miner, if, if they want to race or want to sign up for, for, for next year to start training for it, that's a good place to go. Well, Chad, thanks a lot for, for spending a segment with me here, uh, exposing uh, kind of the traditional hook-and-bullet audience that I have here to, uh, to, to Nordic skiing. 
Uh, thanks for all you do to bring young people into the sport. And, yeah, I've got a son who's going to be running cross-country down in uh, at St. Olaf this fall. Sorry you didn't pick St. Scholastica. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'll watch out for him and say hi to him, tell him I met you on, on the radio. Yeah, there you go. He'll be uh, he'll be running hard this fall. So thanks again, Chad, right. uh, and uh, and good luck with the uh, with the rest of this winter. I hope the uh, the weather changes for the better for for your sport. Thanks a lot. All right, Chad Salmella, uh, Team Berkey, TeamBerkey.com, giving us some great insight into Nordic skiing, cross country skiing. We got some big events coming up. This Lopit Cup at Ted Worth Park, February seventeenth and eighteenth here in Minneapolis. Hoping Jesse Diggins has a good race there, uh, as well as the American Birkenbinder weekend. Up in Hayward, February twenty fourth and twenty fifth. So, hopefully, uh, the weather turns for our cross country skiing audience. Let's break. We will get back to uh, hook and bullet and talk uh, about the twenty four twenty twenty four shot show. When we return, you're listening to WCCO Outdoors. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk eight three zero. It is Sunday, February fourth, twenty twenty four. I am Rob Jerisline. Happy to join you for another segment. Hey, last week was SHOT Show Week in Las Vegas, Nevada, the Shooting Hunting Outdoor Trade Show, an annual event since 1979, I believe. Uh, Vegas has consistently been hosting it the past 15-plus uh, years. And one of my coworkers from Outdoor News, Phil Freebalt, the publication's vice president of sales and marketing, was at that event last week, and he's here now to give us a report Phil, welcome. Thanks for joining the program today. Good to see you. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, good to see you. Good to be back. It sounded like uh, the SHOT Show is back uh, and running at full capacity during the COVID years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was at least one year they didn't even hold it. Uh, there was another year I think we were out there, and it was pretty slow. Uh, and it's slowly been gaining steam, but it sounded like uh, it was it was really humming along this year. Yeah, I think I mentioned to you off air, you know, this was definitely back to pre-pandemic levels as far as attendance goes. Over COVID time, too, they had expanded their show floor, so they added the uh, Caesars Forum, which pretty much almost doubled the size of their show floor. You know, yeah, I, I think the thing's at 800,000 square feet now. Yeah. It's like 18 acres. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's they, amazing. Yeah. They had 2,600 companies exhibiting there. And I think I saw something like if you walked all the aisles, it'd be basically 14 miles of walking. So. But I think after being there for so many years, we, we saw, you know, the, the attendance level is pretty high. And then obviously with COVID, it, it dropped down. There was one year where several companies had committed, but they decided not to go. So they just kind of had a shell of their booth there. And, and But this was, uh, last year was better, but this year was full full bore. It's one of the top three or four trade shows in the country. It is a trade show. That means uh, it's industry folks, media. Uh, it's not a consumer show. The general public doesn't usually get access to the floor. Uh, it's gun manufacturers, tactical manufacturers from around the country, around the world. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they're still doing the print version of the uh, of the SHOT Show program. Oh, yeah, daily. Uh, and I remember the intro to that used to be in about six or seven languages because it's it's far and away the biggest gun show in the world. Oh, yeah. I think uh, I saw that people came from 115 countries, all 50 states, very much a uh, international show. And, and you're correct that it is not for the consumer. It is purely industry folks. It gives folks a bit of a preview, and we'll have some content in an upcoming edition of Outdoor News and at OutdoorNews.com, kind of explaining some of the things that you saw at the show, but we can give folks a little bit of a preview of that now. First off, we could talk a little bit about the the archery pavilion. Now, I go back to the SHOT Show long enough, Phil, to remember when 
the archery folks felt a little left out at shot, and that's why they left to go start their own show. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a couple in there. There was the uh, what the AMO show, and then it became the ATA show. And that show was recently held in St. Louis, I believe. Correct. I think, and it sounded like that was kind of a quiet show. Not not a lot of uh, business being done at that. I think weather perhaps hurt. Mm-hmm. Now it sounds like Shot may be trying to attract some of those archery folks back to uh, to that Vegas event. Yeah, and they did a nice job with it. You know, it was it's a, a small start in comparison to what ATA you know would like to be, but I think they had you know forty to fifty booths there that were archery focused. Some big names in there as well. Um, they had a lot of attendance in there, and I think the uh, the exhibitors really appreciate it. And yeah, from what I had heard, the the weather certainly didn't help ATA this year. But I, I also think the the buying cycle has changed quite a bit. Where at one point all the buyers would do their purchasing for the fall, for the next year at these shows, and the companies would release their brand new products, and they're not doing that anymore. They're buying year round. What was the vibe among those archery exhibitors that you chatted with, Phil? Were they liking it? Were they like, yeah, I think we'll be back at shot next year? Yeah, there was definitely a positive vibe with those folks. I think they appreciated the steady flow of traffic. And yeah, I walked through there the first day of the show on, on Tuesday, and it was packed. And, and then I stopped back there Thursday morning, and uh, it was still packed. It, you know, They had steady traffic, and I think that's all they're looking for is to just get their the word out and, and have that exposure to whoever it is. When more than 60,000 people turn out for a, what, basically a three-, four-day show like this, yeah, you're going to generate some, some right. steady traffic. Uh, some other product categories. Uh, you came back saying you were pretty impressed with uh, the thermal optics, the night vision scopes. Uh, last time I was out there, and I think it's been three years since I've been there, Phil, mm-hmm. that was coming on strong, but it looks like it's, it's showing no sign of slowing down. If you want a uh, scope or binoculars that uh, employ thermal optics, you can find it. Oh, yeah. I think there's more and more companies out there doing that. And and the interesting thing is some of the ones that are a little more, um, you know, mainstay in the hunting industry, like Vortex, wasn't even out there. But there's a lot of uh, newer companies that are, you know, kind of startups that have jumped into that. And I, I don't, I'd have to do some digging to figure out, you know, is, is there an ability for them to get the materials better than there was in the past? Or if it just has been identified as a growth area for the industry, because there's a lot of companies you know, jumping into it, even even companies that are traditional like uh, ammunition manufacturers like Nosler now have a line of optics. They now, you know, they're also going into the suppressor silencer industry as well and, and adding products like that. A lot of emphasis on predator hunting uh, with those tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not cheap. Uh, I don't know what the margins are, but uh, <laughs> you probably don't need a, much of a margin uh, given the price tag on some of this. I, you know, some of it you can get more affordable versions, but if you want to spend money on thermal optics, uh, you definitely can do it. WCCO Outdoors here on News Talk 830. Rob Jerisline, we're chatting with Phil Freeball from Outdoor News. He was out at the SHOT Show, the Shooting Hunting Outdoor Trade Show last week in Las Vegas, and he's given us a thorough report. Browsing through some of the uh, content I see coming out of SHOT, it looked like Lever Action Rifles making a bit of a uh, comeback. Of course, the Winchester 1873 was always the the classic Lever Action, and I see at least one company, Uberti. I'm not even sure is that an Italian company. It looked like they've got an 1873 line that they were unveiling. And I see uh, Winchester's got a cute little uh, Lever Action 22 uh, that they're uh, unleashing on the market. I think a pretty affordable price point, less than $500. Yeah, I think I didn't honestly didn't see Uber T, but uh, there's a lot of companies like that that we haven't heard of. But Winchester certainly had it had it out there prominently displayed. 
I know one company, Coast, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, flashlight, lamps, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, they had uh, kind of a, a cool new tool. Tell us about that. It's a voice control headlamp, and, and, and it truly is accurately controlled with your voice. So it's their kind of their 35R line of, uh, of headlamps, which is one of their better ones, and they've included a voice control uh, module to it. So you got your hands full when you're out in the field or coming back in, bringing in the deer that you shot or whatever the case is, all you got to say is coast on, and the thing turns on, oh, and then wow. it's got all sorts of variables, whether it's got blue light, red mm-hmm. light, green light, it's got a spotlight, and, and the, the whole thing is, you know, it goes where you go. And, and, it, and the cool thing, too, is that the price point is going to be probably in the 70 to $90 range, and seems like it's, it fits right in as an affordable accessory for people that like to get out and hunt, or even, you know, think about uh, for ice fishermen, mm, you know, yeah. to be able to have that when they're out at night and just have that on their head, and, and they got their hands full of buckets and everything else right or, or camping i mean yeah. once you've owned a good headlamp when you're camping yeah. you, you can never camp yeah. without one again and they claim it's first of its kind in the industry we'll see what happens i, I think they're they said there might have been one other but it was really just an on-off command this does all sorts of different things local company federal federal premium they've always got a big booth down there yeah. Uh, I know they were uh, parading around their uh, fusion tipped ammo. It's got a polymer tip on it. That was uh, the the big uh, new product from uh, from Anoka based Federal, huh? Yeah, definitely for for whitetail for the whitetail market. Uh, it's the fusion line they've had I think since two thousand six. But this is a new addition to it that's uh, they feel like is going to increase the velocity and and make it a little more popular. People, I know they on the handgun side they unveiled that uh, thirty super carry round. What a couple of years ago now. Uh, Lesmeister and I went up there and shot a great uh, kind of mid-range round, uh, and uh, I, I know they were hoping more gun manufacturers were going to build guns uh, to to accommodate that round. So far, it sounds like Smith & Wesson is still the dominant brand uh, handling that caliber. Part of the reason is just the gun manufacturers just can't keep up with all the 9mm demand, right. uh, and I would imagine as you were walking the floor, that's usually the caliber that's dominating handguns. Yeah, and, and the, the handgun you know displays at the show or the the manufacturers, it, it's kind of interesting how that's changed because at one time Sig Sauer had the biggest booth in the place, and about two right after COVID, they decided not to come back, and right. and so you've seen you know some of the the mainstays in the industry certainly bringing out some of their new stuff there, but then there's a lot of startups that are doing handguns right now. It, it was interesting, and and companies you've never heard of unless you're really deep into that industry. Looking at the more traditional rifles and shotgun trends uh, on the rifle side, I saw a lot of super lightweight seems to be the dominant trend. I mean, like you see some of these rifles that are that they're uh, marketing right now, and it's like there's hardly even a stock on them. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like how light can you possibly go, especially on the tactical side. Uh, shotguns, I see everything's got a, a camo version. Most of the new stuff is all semi-auto. You don't see a lot of uh, pumps, that's for sure. Obviously, you know, the high-end double barrel is still there. And then with all these optics we're talking about, it seems like more and more of the shotgun manufacturers are making sure their slides and, and the ribs are all, they're all set up to, to accommodate uh, these new high-end optics. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think the you know the aftermarket quote unquote yeah. industry has become big, and that's where we're seeing all all of that. And obviously, with the the suppressors, with with the optics, with um, you know the camo. You, know, you get companies like Realtree there that they've got a huge booth because they're dealing with all these other manufacturers to get their their camo on their products. 
more and more non-toxic emphasis, it seems like, mm-hmm. with bullets, uh, as well as even with shotguns. I see Norma's got a new what they call their wetland loads, obviously uh, directed toward the waterfall market. Right. I think that's a good thing uh, that we're seeing, you know, gradual the industry kind of changing without a lot of mandates to focus more on non-toxics and, and less on lead. That's a new product for them, which it's their first uh, step into the, the shotgun shell side of things on the ammo. The other ammo thing that jumped out at me, I see heavy shot emphasizing uh, some 410 loads. Uh, we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, it seems like the 410 is coming on strong again, especially in number five and number sevens. Uh, always a lot of knife manufacturers there, uh, in oh, yeah. addition to uh, some of the other brands we talked about. Anything else you want to highlight before we go? You mentioned the knives. There's tons of knife plays. One that stood out was Outdoor Edge. They've got this huge replacement blade system with their, their whole line, so you can change the blades rather than uh, having to buy a new knife. You, you can replace the blades. And then we saw there's the aftermarket for knives now. So we've got sharpener companies um, out there. There was a lot more of that that we saw. So the knives are definitely a big part of SHOT Show. It certainly appears that SHOT will be, uh, is on a good run and will be back bigger and better next year, 2025, January 21st to 24th. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, thanks for the, uh, the rundown, Phil. Oh, a, lot of, a lot of great information there. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was Phil Freebalt. little rundown on what happened at the Big Shooting Hunting Outdoor Trade Show in Vegas last week. Let's get in a break. More of the broadcast after these messages. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk 830. Rob Dreesline is with you here for the final few minutes of this week's broadcast. Thank you for tuning in. Stick around. Top of the hour, 60 minutes will be with you. And then at 7 p.m., Tim McNiff is going to host the Sunday night show, so stick around. Good content here on WCCO this evening. Uh, Late-breaking news uh, late this past week that uh, we had at OutdoorNews.com. I will share with everybody now. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, an organization that I've promoted quite a bit, I think pretty highly of their mission, which is protecting public lands, around the country. They hold their annual rendezvous every uh, March, April, that time frame. It's always been in the Intermountain West because that organization is based in Missoula, Montana. But they have a very, very healthy, vibrant, robust, how many different adjectives can I apply, chapter here in Minnesota. Great, great group of guys here uh, in that Minnesota chapter and gals. And uh, they uh, they have been exhibiting uh, you know great leadership over the years, and BHA decided to award the Minnesota chapter with the rendezvous in 2024. First time that it uh, is headed for America's heartland, you might say, leaving the Inner Mountain West. And part of their shtick about the uh, the 2024 event was it was the first time it would be east of the Mississippi River. Uh, they had scheduled it for the fairgrounds, Minnesota, the fairgrounds over in St. Paul, April 18th and 20th. Well, we found out, uh, I believe it was officially on Thursday afternoon, uh, that they are moving it to a different venue in the Twin Cities. It's going to be at the Minneapolis Convention Center. Again, the same day. It's April 18th to 20th, but it's going to be uh, in the city of Minneapolis at the Convention Center, not the fairgrounds. So, West of the Mississippi River. I guess they can't say the first time ever east of the Mississippi River. But nonetheless, the Twin Cities still going to host the, that event, and it should be a really good time. I'm looking forward to being there and uh, interacting with a lot of folks. So please uh, attend that event. It, it, it will be a good time. I uh, have some final thoughts on uh, what I opened the show with, which, which was, again, talking about uh, what this winter means 
for uh, for outdoor activities. Uh, you know, one good thing is the we've got the winter severity index, which is a metric that the DNR puts together to kind of describe how bad the winter is for wildlife, specifically white-tailed deer. And a year ago at this time, we were looking at pretty severe winter severity index readings, and it's one reason the deer population has been in pretty rough shape here in the state. Uh, hey, the good news is we, we've got like probably the lowest WSI readings we've ever had here in Minnesota. Uh, on page 24 of this week's print edition of Outdoor News, we pr- we printed that the maps from last year next to the map this year. And, I mean, this is like a non-winter. The whole state is in, you know, kind of the mild zone. So that's uh, that's some good news for white-tailed deer. That should help, uh, you know, the deer population bounce back in the north uh, and, you know, and across the state. And if you, I tell you what, you get a couple winters like this, and all of a sudden, you know, we're going to go from where are all the deer to, you know, what do we do to, to, to manage and kill more deer in the state? So we'll see, uh, you know, what this means long term. This is an El Nino year. It's the most severe El Nino year we've ever seen. But bottom line, good news for, for deer. Uh, and by the way, the, you know, the, uh, the white goose, the uh, snow goose season kicks off February 18th. Normally that's just a bizarre early date on the calendar. You wonder why they open it so early because the snow geese don't come through for another month. This year you almost wonder, could we have snow goose hunting in late February in Minnesota and the Dakotas? Uh, we'll know more. Hey, with that, I'm out of time. Uh, stay tuned next for 60 Minutes. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And everybody have a great week out of doors. Rob Dreesline signing off for WCCO Outdoors.